you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter number one. We're going to continue our series through uh, the book of Philippians called Rejoice in the Lord, uh, loosely based on the song we just sung a few moments ago, but mostly uh, based upon the verse in Philippians chapter number four and verse number four, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, and rejoicing is the uh, overarching theme of the book of uh, Philippians. And so we're learning about that, and as we, uh, we're going to go ahead and continue that this morning. Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we'll read verses 27 through verse 30. And if you're there, would you join me in standing in reading uh, the Word of God together? And uh, we'll read verses 27 through verse number 30. Verse 27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And uh, let's pray one more time together this morning. Lord, we appreciate Your Word. And Lord, uh, I pray that You would teach us this morning what we need to learn from Your Word. And I ask that you would guide us into all truth. Help us to be good hearers this morning, but also I pray that you would help us to be good doers of what we hear. And I pray, Lord, you'd be pleased with our response to the Word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've met together and gone through. Uh, we're, we're in Philippians chapter number 1, and and so I wanted to take a moment and just review a little bit of where we're at in uh, Philippians chapter number one. If you recall, uh, Paul is the human author of this book, and he uh, starts here in verses one through two and, and gives us an opening greeting and opening remarks on, uh, on basically who, he's, who, who the author is and who he's writing to. And then he uh, goes into verses 3 through 8, and we see Paul's heart of gratitude for this church family. No doubt Paul had a very close and intimate relationship with this church family. There was something special and unique about this church at Philippi in Paul's heart and mind. Well, then in verses 9 through 11, we see Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and definitely a good uh, model for us to be praying for one another as well, uh, and uh, learning how to uh, grow in knowledge and in judgment and proving all things that are excellent and, and uh, just a great prayer uh, for the Philippians and also ones that we can, a prayer that we can take with us as well as we pray for one another. Uh, verses 12 through 18, we see how Paul rejoiced in God's sovereignty. Remember, uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote this book and, and he was thankful for the fact that God had a plan and a purpose for his chains. Uh, he didn't necessarily vote for the chains and choose the chains, but, but the Lord did, and he was rejoicing in the fact that God did and for a purpose. Uh, verses 19 through 26, uh, last time we, we were in this passage, we 
learned about Paul's assurance, Paul's aim, Paul's attitude, and his anticipation. And this is where we find the very important verse, verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, while we were on vacation, uh, there was a young lady that we met one evening, and uh, she, she was uh, part of, uh, one of the things she did for work was, she's a high school senior, going to be this year, and she, uh, she sold popsicles. And uh, we met her at a restaurant, and she uh, was telling us about these popsicles, and she was passionate about popsicles. Now, I'm pretty passionate about popsicles as well, but this lady took it to a whole new, whole new level. And uh, she ended up, they, they had closed for the night, but they decided to reopen for us because we wanted popsicles <laughs> after she began to sell it to us. Well, but she also said, basically, my life is all about these popsicles and all about their high school uh, team, one of their baseball team, was it a volleyball team. You guys remember? It was one of their high school teams. She was a t statistic. Uh, she took stats for this high school team that uh, she, was, uh, she went to high school for. So she said, my life is basically all about taking stats and popsicles. And I thought to myself, how sad. I mean, not that those are necessarily bad things, but boy, she's missing out on something far greater and what Paul said here in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. And that's what consumed his life. And the encouragement for all of us is to allow Christ to consume our lives as well. Well, now in the verses we just read, verses 27 through verse 30, uh, we come to a charge, a, a challenge that Paul gives this church family. And in the spirit of the uh, season, because it is football season, amen, I think it's officially started, right? Has it officially started? I am declaring that it's officially started right here, right now. Because there was a preseason game last night, and I liked the results of that preseason game. So football season is here. And so like a football coach would gather his team before the game and, and uh, have some type of a pep talk and give them some type of a charge and a challenge and, and a strategy for the game ahead, Paul does this with his church family, only this is not a football game. This is far more important. This is the Christian life. And so he gives them this challenge, and we would be wise to take heed to the same challenge as well as believers. And so this morning, without further ado, let's get into it. So I would like you to notice with me this morning four elements of this challenge that Paul gives this church family. First of all, in verse 27, we see that Paul challenges them and us to be consistent with the gospel. To be consistent with the gospel. Verse 27 once again says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now we look at that and we see the word conversation. and We, we immediately think of our, our verbal communication, our verbal conversation that we would have with one another. And certainly it includes speech. But it goes far more important and far uh, greater than just our speech. It has to do with our manner of life. Only let your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, is your manner of life consistent with the gospel? Does it match up with the gospel? Does it, is it becoming of the gospel? 
Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul tells them as well, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So Paul is telling these churches to walk in such a way and live in such a way that's consistent with the gospel. Why is that? Well, because people are watching our lives as believers. And, and he, he tells the Corinthians, he says, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You know, the only gospel that some people will ever know is your life. Does your life reflect the gospel? When you're at work, when you're at school, some of you have already started school, some of you are starting school soon. Hallelujah for school. No amens from the teen ministry. I'm telling you, God has placed you in your school or in your place of business or in your neighborhood for a reason. To be that epistle that is known and read among of, of all men. People are going to be watching your life and, and what are they going to see when they look at your life? Uh, the word, only let your conversation be, uh, that that phrase there is from a Greek word, and I'm going to try to say it. Poletu omahi. Say that five times fast. Um, I took two years of Greek in college, and I'm still have, I still have trouble pronouncing some of these Greek words. But this word means behave as a citizen or to live in such a way. And so this conversation is more than just uh, again, our speech, it has to do with behaving as a citizen. Uh, Paul later says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20, he says, for our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I recently, uh, I recently became an Okie, officially. You see, I finally got my driver's license transferred from Montana to Oklahoma. And it is right here in all its glory, in all its bald glory. <laughs> um, here it is. And uh, the reason it took so long is there were some issues with my commercial driver's license, and I wanted to make sure that that transferred over. But uh, a, few week, a couple weeks ago, I officially became an Okie. And so now I'm officially a citizen of Oklahoma. But I want to tell you this morning, I am also a citizen of another. Uh, as a Christian, I am the citizen of heaven. I don't need a driver's license for that. and The transfer of license is way easier there. And this citizenship uh, as a Christian is far greater than all other citizenships combined. I'm a citizen of America, yes. I'm a citizen of planet Earth, yes. I'm a citizen of Oklahoma, I'm a citizen of more Oklahoma, to be exact. But far more importantly, I'm a citizen of heaven. And if you're a believer, so are you. How are you doing as a citizen of heaven? Are you representing heaven well? I would, uh, as a citizen of Oklahoma, I'm under certain laws. I need to obey certain, certain uh, laws here in, in, in Oklahoma and in America and in heaven, the same is true. How am I doing in that area? Uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse number 10, Paul tells Timothy, or Titus, he says, he says, not purloining, but 
showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We need to be matching up with the gospel. We need to be consistent with the gospel. You know, whenever I think of our role as Christians in this world, I think of the moon. You know, on the fourth day of creation, the Bible says, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Well, when the Son, Jesus Christ, was here on this planet, His light shone wherever He went. However, when He ascended back into heaven after His death, burial and resurrection, the earth once again returned to darkness. But He leaves us as Christians here to be reflections of His light, like the moon is a reflection of the sun. How often are you reflecting the light of the Son of God to those around you? You know, every so often we have what's called a lunar eclipse. During this event, the earth comes between the sun and the moon in such a way that the moon is unable to reflect the light of the sun. You apply that to Christians. How sad that we often as Christians are in a period of lunar eclipse. We allow this world to come between us and the sun, and thus we cannot reflect his light to people around us that are in darkness and need the light so badly. God commands us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The Apostle Paul later adds, for you are sometimes darkness, now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul challenges the Philippians here in this passage. First of all, he says, be consistent with the gospel. Let your light life match up with the gospel. So, friend, brother, sister, is your life matched up with the gospel? Does it reflect the sun accurately and effectively? That's God's plan for us. But secondly, he challenges, us, challenges them in uh, verse 27 to be constant in the gospel. Verse number 27, again, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast. Stand fast. And that's, from, that's a little easier Greek word to pronounce. It's stako. It means to be stationary, to persevere, to stand fast. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 or 58, Paul says to the church at Corinth, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He also says later, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And notice here, we are to be faithful when others are watching and when they're not watching. In verse 27, he says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you are standing fast, that you are being constant in the gospel. Philippians 4.1, Paul says to the church of Philippi later on, he says, Therefore, my, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. So we're encouraged here to stay faithful, to be constant in the gospel. 
Can I ask you a question? What would it take for you to stop being faithful? What, what would it take for you to stop coming to church? You know what? I'm just not going anymore because of... And you fill in the blank. What would it be? What would it take for you to stop reading your Bible? What would it take for you to stop praying, to stop witnessing, to stop doing right? God wants us to be faithful. And it's easy to be faithful when there's no opposition, but Paul knew full well that this church was going to face some opposition, and so that's why he challenged them to stand fast, to be constant in the gospel. Derek Redmond, anybody ever heard that name? Derek Redmond was a great runner, but he was an even great finisher. Derek will forever be remembered for his staggering performance in the 400-meter men's semifinals during the Summer Olympics of 1992 in Barcelona, Spain. After years of training, persistence, and self-discipline, Derek was competing on the world stage. His dream had literally become a reality. But halfway through his 400-meter race, Derek pulled a hamstring muscle and collapsed on the track. Writhing in pain, he watched the other runners quickly pass him and his dream of winning die. But staying down wasn't in Derek's blood. Oh no, though winning was out of the question, finishing was not. As the medical crew arrived with the stretcher, Derek said, there's no way I'm getting on that stretcher. I'm going to finish my race. The stadium packed with 65,000 fans and with millions viewing around the world. Derek slowly struggled to his feet. And in spite of the agonizing pain, he began hobbling toward the finish line in last place, of course. Tears streamed down his face as his heart filled with disappointment. Yet he was determined to finish the race. He was going to be constant. He was going to stand fast. Well, at that point, a large man from the top row of the stands began to run toward the track. It was Tim Redmond. Derek's father, disregarding security guards, running over people, determined that no one would stop him. He ran to his son's side. At first, Derek tried to push him away, not realizing that it was his father. He thought someone was trying to get him to quit the race. Derek, it's me. Recognizing that familiar voice, Derek said, Dad, I have to finish the race. Well, if you're going to finish the race, then we'll finish it together. With those words, his father took his son in his arms, and together they began to hobble down the track. By this time, the other runners had completed the race, and the crowd realized that Derek wasn't hobbling off the track, but rather he was hobbling toward the finish line on one leg with his father at his side. In total disbelief, these 65,000 fans stood to their feet and began to cheer for Derek. The roar of the crowd increased with every painful step. Approaching the finish line, Jim Redmond stepped aside to allow Derek to cross by himself. The crowd exploded into thunderous applause and emotional release. Derek collapsed into his father's embrace and both wept on each other's shoulders along with 65,000 fans and millions of viewers. Derek had finished a race the world would never forget. Now Christian, God has given you a race to run as well. 
And there's going to come times where you're going to be injured along the way. And you're going to be tempted to get off the track and call it quits and throw in the towel. But I want to encourage you, and Paul's encouraging this church family to stand fast and to stay uh, faithful in times of difficulty as well as in times of, of plenty and, and, and blessing. Paul says to the churches of Galatia in chapter 6 and verse 9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So I want to encourage you, Christian, to not ever give up. Be constant in the gospel and to faint not. Don't quit. I know there's going to be times where it's going to be tempting to do so. But whatever you do, hang on. Stand fast in the gospel. So Paul encourages and challenges the church to be consistent with the gospel, to be constant in the gospel. And then thirdly, he challenges them to be cooperative in the gospel. Again, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast, and here it is, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. How many of you are familiar with Tonto and the Lone Ranger? Would you raise your hand? Several hands. Well, there was one episode where Tonto and the Lone Ranger were riding through a canyon together when all of a sudden both sides were filled with Native American warriors on horses, dressed for battle. The Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and asked, What are we going to do? Tonto replied, What you mean we, white man? (laughs) Unfortunately, this describes many churches. Uh, We'll get along so long as there's no opposition. The moment problem comes, unity is out the window. Well, if you flip back over to Ephesians, it's one book prior to Philippians, and look in uh, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and verse number 3. Let's look at the importance of unity, the importance of being cooperative in the gospel. Ephesians 4, verse 3 says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You can flip back over to Philippians. See here the importance of unity. But I want us to notice here in verse 27 of Philippians that the order is important. First, we see the consistent life with the gospel, a life of purity and a life of truth. And then we have cooperation. You see, the order in the Bible is first purity, then peace. Many today elevate peace over purity. But the Bible order is purity and truth, then we have peace. You see, we're united over the things that are right and truthful. James 3.17, it says, For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated. Matthew 5 and verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And then verse 9, the very next verse says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You see, we need to have purity first, then we can have peace. We need to have truth first, an agreement on truth, then we can have unity. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, to remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one in John 17, verse 22? A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is, Christians of all doctrinal shades and belief must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite. Such teaching is false, Spurgeon said. It's false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Only uh, Look at verse 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 17 comes before verse 22 in that passage, if you'll notice. Spurgeon goes on to say, only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And so we need to remember that uh, truth comes before unity and purity comes before peace. Romans 14, 17 continues this thought when Paul said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Same order. Righteousness, truth purity, and then we can have peace, unity, and togetherness. Now, once we understand the biblical order, understand how good and powerful unity is, uh, David said this in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That needs to be plastered all over our house, doesn't it, Mrs.? How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. (laughs) But you know what? We could plaster that in our church too. That would do us well. Unity is a powerful thing. Uh, Years ago at the World's Fair, two draft horses were pulling amazing amounts of weight in the competition. One horse pulled 9,000 pounds while another pulled just over 8,000 pounds. After the competition, those in charge thought it would be interesting to yoke these two giant horses together and see how much weight they could pull together. Well, everyone assumed that together they would pull about 17,000 pounds, right? 8,000 plus 9,000 equals 17,000. Sorry for doing math on a Sunday. I apologize. But when the horses were hooked up to the 17,000-pound weight, they pulled it easily. The weight was increased until these two horses together were pulling over 30,000 pounds. While difficult to explain, this phenomena is known as synergy. The total of the two is greater than the sum of the individual parts. I wonder what could be done in this world for the glory of God if we were cooperative in the gospel like we were supposed to. Paul says here, I want you to be of one spirit. In verse 27, in one spirit, stand fast in one spirit. 
Reminds me of Acts 4 and verse 32, where the Bible says about the early church, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. That's the way Cornerstone Baptist Church needs to be. Uh, That we're of one heart and of one soul, of one spirit. And then also he says to be of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One mind. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Striving together, he says, as opposed to striving against each other. And that happens within churches, unfortunately. They strive against each other. But the, Paul, the way Paul is saying is, like, we need to be on the same team, pulling the same rope. And not opposite directions, the same direction. We can accomplish so much more. I want to show you just quickly uh, this morning a triangle. And we'll show it on the screen here. At the top of this triangle, you see the Lord, God. And then on one side, you see yourself. And on the other side, you see others. The way we can have true unity and get closer to one another is if we're closer to God. The closer we move to God, the closer we are to one another. But conversely, the further we are from from the Lord is the further we are from each other. The greatest part of unity is to get close to God and we'll be on the same page. And so you just individually need to decide that I'm going to be close to the Lord. And this, by the way, applies to marriage. This applies to uh, parent-child relationship. This applies to church member relationships. This, This applies to any type of relationship you can think of. The closer you are to the Lord, the closer you are to the other person who is close to the Lord as well. So brothers and sisters, let's be cooperative in the gospel. Let's not have division. Let's not uh, fight with one another. Uh, Let's be on the same page going forward and striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul says in his pregame speech, so so to speak, he says, look, let's be consistent. Let's make sure we're living according to the gospel. We're, we're, we're consistent with the gospel and let's stand fast. Let's be constant. Uh, let's stay faithful. And then let's be cooperative, working together as a team, not fighting amongst each other, but let's work together. And then finally, he says, be courageous in the gospel. And, and this is found in verse number 28 through verse number 30. He says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. He says, look, you're going to face some adversaries, just like I've faced some adversaries. And I don't want you to be scared to death of them. I want you to have some courage as you face the adversaries that you're going to face. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Look, standing for God in a day of wicked apostasy is not an easy thing to do, but it must be done. I can relate with Jude when he wrote his epistle. and In verse number 3 of Jude, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. And uh, I'll stop right there and say... What, Paul, what Jude wanted to write about was salvation. He wanted to be encouraging. He wanted to talk about the wonderful blessing salvation was. But he said, actually, 
when I looked around at the culture, I realized I needed to write something a little different. It was not what I wanted to write, but it was what I needed to write. And here's what he needed to write them to do. He said, I, wanted, I needed to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He said, you're going to have to stand up in this day of apostasy, in the day of, of wickedness. You're going to have to stand for truth. And you're going to have to be courageous as you do so. There's going to be an overwhelming uh, majority that are going to be against you. But earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The problem is we live in a day when people are not willing to take a stand for what's right. I recently read about a test conducted by a university where 10 students were placed in a room. And three lines of varying lengths were drawn on a card. The students were told to raise their hands when the instructor pointed to the longest line on the card. But nine of the students had been instructed beforehand to raise their hand when the instructor pointed to the second longest line. And one student was the stooge. He was the guinea pig to see what he would do. The usual reaction of the stooge was to put his hands up look around, realizing he was all alone, and then pull it back down. This happened 75% of the time with students from grade school through high school. The researchers concluded that many would rather follow the crowd than be right. Unfortunately, we see that in Christianity in 2019. Well, we would rather follow the crowd so that we don't stand out than to stand up for what's right and what's true. Standing for right is sometimes risky business. Such was the case for the church at Philippi. If they knew that if they stood up for right, they were going to be ostracized by uh, the government and, and uh, perhaps the whole culture around them. And yet over and over again in the Bible, we're called to be courageous. I think of Psalm 27 and verse 14, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. God wants us to be of good courage. He wants us to be courageous in the gospel. As we go through verses 28 through verse 30 very quickly this morning, I want to share with you, first of all, the proof in verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. When, when this church family was going to face some adversaries, it was a proof of two things. It was a proof, first of all, that their adversaries were not Christians. He says, it, which to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation. It was an evidence that those who were against them were not saved, and it was an evidence that they themselves were Christians, because they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And it was an evidence that they were doing the right thing if they were having some opposition. And uh, honestly, in 2019, if we're not having some type of, not that we should be looking for persecution, I don't think anybody in their right mind would want to do that. But if, 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 every, if you're in a pretty wicked culture and everything's just going hunky-dory, I'm kind of wondering how godly in Christ Jesus are you? Now, I mean... I work at a church, and so I'm around godly people all the time. And so it's a little different for me. 
but in my neighborhood, uh, but those who go to a public school, those who work in, a public, in the public sector, not that we should be looking for it, but I'm telling you, it's part of it. And that leads me to number uh, to verse 29 here, and that's the promise. It says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Uh, we're given a promise that believing in the Lord and becoming a Christian, it's going to be just perfect. Our whole life's going to be easy after that moment, right? No. That's false teaching. And those who preach that are sadly mistaken because believing on Christ sometimes brings on more problems than were there before. But it gives the greatest solution to the greatest problem, and that is our sin, of course. But Peter told his readers, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial was to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Now again, is that our first natural response to going through times of suffering for the Lord? To be happy? To rejoice? To take joy? No. That's what Peter encourages us to do. Peter would know. He experienced difficulty and trials and adversaries when he was in his ministry as well. But then we see here, and that leads me to verse 30 here, and that's where we see the parallel having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. When we go through times of suffering because of our Christianity, know that we're in good company. Know that Paul dealt with the same conflict. Know that Peter dealt with some suffering. And then most of all, know that Jesus suffered as well. Quite a group to join in. No wonder Luke said in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Would that be your response if you maybe get overlooked for a promotion because of your faith? Uh, maybe someone says something kind of harsh about you. Would you say, I'm going to rejoice that I was counted worthy to suffer shame for his name? And there have been people throughout the ages who have experienced far worse than being overlooked for a promotion for their faith. And so if you go through a little bit of first world problems because of your faith, I'm telling you, you your response should not be whining and complaining. Your response should be, I should say our response, because I know that at times I tend to whine and complain as well. Our response needs to be rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. So I want to encourage us to be courageous. And I believe that being a godly Christian will require more and more courage as time goes on here in America. This country is becoming less and less friendly to those who follow and stand up for the Word of God. And we're going to decide, need to decide to be courageous in the gospel. All right, so Paul issues this challenge to the church at Philippi and to us to live consistent with the gospel, to be constant, faithful in the gospel, to be cooperative, a united front in the gospel, and to be courageous in the gospel 
course, this all begs the question, why? What's the big deal? So that we can win a football game? No, far more important. Paul answers it at the end of verse 27. And it's the title of the message today. For the faith of the gospel. That's why we need to do all these things. See, this pep talk, this challenge was given for the purpose of spreading the gospel to the next generation, to our community, and to our lost and dying world for the faith of the gospel. That's why we should be consistent. That's why we should be constant. That's why we should be cooperative and courageous so that others can hear the gospel of Christ. And let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for how it changes lives. Thank you for how it changed mine. Lord, I obviously would not be standing here today if it were not for the gospel of Christ. Lord, thank you for this challenge that Paul gives this church family. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to this challenge and to take heed to it ourselves here in 2019 in Moore, Oklahoma. Help us, Lord, to be consistent with the gospel, to live in such a way that matches up with your truth. Help us, Lord, to stand fast and to be, cons- to, to be constant to not quit, to not ever give up. Help us, Lord, to be cooperative and to be of one spirit, of one mind, striving together. And help us, Lord, to be courageous in this day of apostasy and in this day where people are are falling away from the truth. Help us, Lord, to stand faithful and be courageous, even if it means dealing with adversaries, even if it means dealing with suffering. Help us, Lord, to be courageous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.